Uh, this isn't too tricky. A uh, pine tree covered with decorations and lights. What event does that make you think of? Yeah, Christmas, of course. Um, a, can, a cake covered with candles. A birthday, absolutely. These are not tricky. What about this one? Bread and wine. Communion, the Lord's Supper. That's what we might say anyway. But today... We're looking at Mark 14. We're going back almost 2,000 years. And in Jesus' day, bread and wine meant something very different. Just as certain as the Christmas tree meant Christmas for us and the cake with candles meant a birthday, bread and wine in Jesus' day meant something completely different to what we think of it today. So what it meant in Jesus' day was the Passover meal. And today in Mark 14, we're looking at Jesus sharing a Passover meal with his disciples. Now, last week in Mark 14, you might remember that we were thinking about how the whole of Mark's gospel right from the start has been preparing us for one event. That event was the death and resurrection of Jesus. But here it's bigger because today we see that not only has Mark's gospel been preparing us for the death and resurrection of Jesus... In fact, this Jewish festival called the Passover, which has been going on for 1,200 years before Jesus, has been preparing for Jesus' death. And so as Jesus celebrates this Passover meal, as he does in Mark 14 with his disciples, he's going to drop a bombshell on this whole Passover event that means it will never be the same again. So this morning what we're going to be doing is thinking a little bit about the Passover in the Old Testament so that we can understand what's going on here in Mark 14 with Jesus and his disciples. But let's pick it up in Mark 14, verse 12. Be good to follow along in your Bibles there. Mark 14, 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, in fact, some of your um, Bibles might have at the top a little heading called the Lord's Supper. Ignore that completely. That phrase doesn't come up in the passage. It's been added in later. This is not about the Lord's Supper. This is about the Passover, isn't it? On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? The question is, Jesus, where are we going to eat the Passover? Notice the question isn't, are we going to eat it? Because every Jew was commanded to celebrate the Passover. But the question is, where will we eat it? Because you weren't allowed to celebrate the Passover outside of Jerusalem. That was commanded in the Old Testament. But Jesus and his disciples, remember, are staying in Bethany, outside of Jerusalem. So where will they eat the Passover? Well, Jesus already has that worked out. Verse 13. So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city. See, into Jerusalem. And a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. See, this, is a, this Passover meal is an important meal for Jesus, 
and there's a room ready to prepare the meal and all the disciples have, have to do is go and prepare the food, which they do. Jesus seems to have it all organised. And when evening comes, verse 17, they eat. And as they do, Jesus announces in verse 18 there, I won't read it, but he announces that Judas will betray him. Now, why is that there? We already know from last week, don't we, that Judas will betray Jesus. And in the chapter we're looking at next week, it will happen. So why this incident here, where Jesus predicts the betrayal? Well, this is where we find out that Jesus already knew about it as well. See, the betrayal by Judas, as terrible as it is, it's not a mistake. It's part of God's plan. In fact, not only did Jesus know about it, in the Old Testament in Psalm 41.7, you might want to jot that down and look it up later, Psalm 41.7, it was actually promised this, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. All my enemies whisper together against me. See, that psalm about God's king, God's Messiah, is being fulfilled here. Judas, a close friend, whispering, even one who shares the bread with Jesus and who betray him. But if these events in Mark's Gospel are a fulfilment of what was promised in the Old Testament, what we read next in Mark's Gospel is one of the clearest signposts in the whole Old Testament that's pointing to Jesus. It is the Passover meal itself. Now, as I've already said, to understand this section of Mark, we need to understand what the Passover meal was all about. So let's leave Mark for a little while, maybe slip your bulletin in or slip a finger in or a bookmark, and let's go all the way back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. We've just turned back maybe 800, 1,000 pages, but we've actually gone back in time 1,700 years. So the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, it begins with a man called Jacob, whose nickname is Israel. The descendants of Israel become the Jewish people, the Hebrews. That's why they're called Israelites. They're the children of Israel. Israel had 12 sons, we find out in Exodus 1, and because of a famine, those 12 sons move to Egypt. All that happens in Exodus 1, verse 1. They were very good breeders, we find out in Exodus. They multiplied, and pretty soon there were so many descendants of Israel that the king of Egypt, who's called a pharaoh, was threatened by them, and so he forced them into slavery, a very oppressive slavery. Look at Exodus 1, verse 14. This is talking about the way that the Israelites were oppressed. They made their lives bitter with hard labour in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And so as we read on in Exodus where the the labour gets worse, in Exodus chapter 2 verse 23, the Israelites cry out to God for help. Rescue us, God. And God hears their cry and he raises up a rescuer called Moses. By now we're up to Exodus 3. And Moses confronts Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh, let the Israelites go. By now we're up to Exodus 7, where Pharaoh 
refuses to let the Israelites go. And in response, we have the ten plagues. God unleashes terrible judgments on the nation of Israel. Ten terrible plagues. Ten plagues that will force Pharaoh to set the Israelites free. The last of those ten plagues is called the Passover. It is a terrible plague where the oldest son in every Egyptian family will die. Have a read of Exodus 11. We're up to Exodus 11 now. Exodus 11 verse 4, where it describes this terrible plague called the Passover. Exodus 11 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. That terrible plague is called the Passover because when the angel comes to kill all the firstborn sons, God says he will pass over the houses of God's people. And that's the way it works. Actually, this is the way it works. Have a look at Exodus 12, verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Okay, they're to take a lamb. Verse 6. Take care of the lamb until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So the lambs get killed. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Put some blood on the doorposts. Verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, as we read on, that's exactly what happens. The destroying angel comes in judgment on Pharaoh for his rebellion against God. The enemies of God's people are judged, but the angel passes over the houses with the blood on the doorposts. God's people are rescued. That's why it's called the Passover. And after the Passover, Pharaoh has had enough. He lets the Israelites go free and God leads them out, out, out of Egypt through the Red Sea, gives them the Ten Commandments, all the rest of the book of Exodus. They become his people. This event is so big in the Old Testament. It keeps getting referred to and looked back to. And in fact, every year the Jews are told to celebrate the Passover by eating a meal to remember it, just like our Christmas or, or New Year's Eve. They are told to reenact what happened to them. They're to kill a lamb every year and eat it, just like they did on the first Passover. And they, they, they are to explain to their children what happened way back then. Exodus 12 verse 24 tells them how to explain it to their children. It says this, Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. That's the Passover. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, 
It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. That's the Passover meal. That is the meal that Jesus eats with his disciples the night before he dies. And as he eats it, Jesus does something unusual. He makes special reference to the bread and the wine, and he talks about it not as being about the Passover, but as being about him. Come back to Mark 14 and have a look at Mark 14, verse 22. Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, the Passover meal that is, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, Take it, this is my body. What is that about? What is the bread that Jesus is taking? The bread in the Passover meal that Jesus is taking, God named it the bread of affliction, okay? the bread of suffering. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. Sorry for all the flipping. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 16. In Deuteronomy 16, God's people are just about to enter the promised land and God again reminds them about the Passover meal. But here he talks particularly about the bread and what it means. Deuteronomy 16, verse 1. Observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God. Because in the month of Aviv he brought you out of Egypt by night. Nothing new there. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd, at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. See, that's saying do it in Jerusalem. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. Because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. So, so in the Passover meal, the bread is called the bread of affliction. And it's to remind them of their terrible slavery and suffering in Egypt. And as they eat the Passover meal and the children say, Dad, what's this disgusting bread we've got to eat that doesn't have yeast in it and it's all tough and, and it's not fluffy? Why have we got to eat it? And the father would say, this is the bread of suffering. We eat this bread once a year to remind us of the pain before we were saved from Egypt. The beatings by King Pharaoh, the slavery, the bread of affliction before God rescued us. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus takes that bread, the bread of suffering, and he says, take it, this is my body. What does he mean there? What, what can he mean but when you eat this bread, don't remember your afflictions in Egypt. Remember me. Remember my afflictions. Remember my body. Because Jesus' body is about to be beaten and tortured and hung up on a cross to die in the place of his people. That's why Peter will write later, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Well, that's why Paul can write later, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung 
on a tree. The bread of affliction, Jesus says, represents his body. That's the bread. What about the cup, though? Because in Mark 12, 23, Jesus goes on, he takes the cup. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now, if you go back and read the Passover event, there's no mention of a cup in the actual Exodus account, but there is mention of blood, isn't there? They are to kill the Passover lamb, verse 7 of Exodus 12, and they're to take some of the blood and put it on the door frames. And then verse 13, God says, when I see the blood on the door frames, I will pass over you. In Exodus, it was the blood of the Passover lamb that stopped the judgment of God. God made a promise. That's what the word covenant is. A covenant is a promise. God made a promise. And this was God's covenant with his people back then. God's Passover covenant was put blood on the doorposts and my judgment will pass over you. And everyone who obeyed that covenant, everyone who trusted God's promise, they were saved. And what does Jesus say in Mark 14? He says, this is my blood, not the blood of a lamb, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What does he mean? What can he mean except that he is making a new promise, a new covenant, a new promise about his blood? This time, it's not the blood of a lamb. It is the blood of Jesus that will rescue God's people. It's about trusting in his death on the cross. So Jesus is saying that this Passover meal is no longer about the rescue from Exodus. It's about a new rescue. It's about him. The biggest rescue in the Old Testament is about to be eclipsed by an even bigger rescue as Jesus bears the sin and affliction of his people in his body on, his, on the cross. And in verse 26 of Mark 14, that's what Jesus heads off to do. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And there Jesus was betrayed and arrested and taken off to be crucified as the new Passover sacrifice. I want, you, I want you just to imagine for a moment two Jewish blokes back at that first Passover in Exodus 12. This isn't in the Bible, I'm just making it up. Two Jewish blokes, let's call them Eli and Jesse, okay, next door neighbours. Eli doesn't know what to make of this whole Passover idea. It sounds a bit strange to him. He's just heard it from Moses. And he's a, he's a bit unsure because he doesn't have many lambs. And he's not sure about sacrificing one of them and putting the blood on the doorframe. And, and Eli never really thought of himself as a man of real strong faith anyway. In fact, he has a few of his doubts about God and some things. But this Passover thing sounds pretty important. And he's already seen some of God's judgments on, on the Egyptians. So he trusts God. He takes one of his best lambs. He kills it. He puts the blood on his doorposts. He tucks his oldest son into bed and he prays that God will keep them safe. That's Eloy. Next door, there's a guy, Jesse. 
He's a good Jewish man. Circumcised. Thinks he knows God pretty well. He's heard about from Moses about the Passover lamb. But it sounds a bit fanatical to him. Surely you don't need to kill a lamb for God to rescue you. Besides, with all those other plagues, Jesse was rescued. He didn't have to do a thing. He'll be right this time. So he didn't kill a lamb. He didn't paint the blood on the door. Nighttime comes, he tucks his boy into bed. Kiss him goodnight. Prays for God to keep him safe. When the angel comes, which house does he pass over? What's the difference? One trusted God's promise, took God at his word. The other one thought he knew better. Now today, God has provided a way for people to be saved. But if you don't trust him, it won't work. Doesn't matter how clever you are. Doesn't matter how good you think you are. Doesn't matter how religious you are, how many times you go to church. Doesn't matter how spiritual you might think you are. If you are not sheltering under the blood of Jesus, if you have not asked him for forgiveness, if you're not trusting in his death on the cross for you, then God's future judgment will not pass over you. But if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, then when God's future judgment comes, it will pass over you. That's God's covenant. That's his promise to you. Because your judgment has already been taken by Jesus when he died. So please be clear about one thing this morning. On God's future judgment day, there is only one place to take shelter. It's under the blood of Jesus. It's like that song we sing at Western Plains. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, how can we respond to this sacrifice of your son other than to say thank you and to put our trust in him? Father, thank you that you left us in no doubt about what Jesus' death was about. Thank you that you set up a whole system in the Old Testament to prepare us for it. And Father, thank you that Jesus, in his body, died to bear the sins of his people. Thank you that through his blood, through his death on the cross, you have made us a promise, a way that we can be saved. And Father, we pray that when Jesus returns or when we're taken to be before your judgment throne, that we might be found ready, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in Jesus. Amen.